3: Sports Business Radio launched in 2004. Brian Berger has interviewed the biggest names in sports and business. Let's step into the Sports Business Radio Vault and look back on some of our favorite conversations. This week, we look back on conversations with Jeannie Buss, Los Angeles Lakers governor, Chris Evert, tennis icon and ESPN tennis commentator, and Candace Parker, WNBA star and NBA on TNT
4: analyst. Now, enter the Sports Business Radio Vault the owner of the Los Angeles Lakers, Jeannie Buss. Give her a hand. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. Hi, everybody.
4: <laughs> so uh, if you don't follow us on social media at SB Radio, Jeannie is the first repeat guest for the Sports Business Radio Roadshow. We sat down in 2015 at USC, and we were on your turf, and, and now you've been nice enough to come to Loyola Marymount. Thank you.
1: Um, it's It's... I Literally, this is my turf, too, because I live in Playa Vista, so it takes me three minutes to get up here, so it's a pleasure to be here.
4: See, I think you should have brought your dog.
1: I thought about it, <laughs> <laughs> but she's at home. She's fine, a little little teacup Maltese.
4: All right, before we start, I did my, my research, which I always do for these, and uh, I read that you have a sweet tooth, and that you and Linda Rambus sometimes sit... And you like oh, what do we have here? You like sour patch oh, kids and this skittles. Is
1: genius! Thank you. So during the
4: conversation oh, today, if you. you decide you'd like to open those up, and uh, <laughs> I'll take your lead on that. But if you thank want you. some, we can uh, we can share.
1: Well, that you know, it is a it's a, a good tip for for um, you know as you go into the working world, you always want to have something. Sweet on your desk so that people stop by, and that's how you get to know people you work with. Because especially the ones who like candy, they'll stop by a lot. But you know, it's it's a nice thing to do in a work environment.
4: Okay, so there they are. <laughs> um, let's start off as we always do with these road shows, talking about your college experience. You went to USC, and uh, you had the amazing experience of being able to run a world tennis team while yes. you were 19 years old. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that in your college experience at USC.
1: So, um, that you guys understand my background. Um, my father bought the forum, uh, the Los Angeles Lakers and the Los Angeles Kings. A lot of people forget that he owned the LA Kings for about That's eight right. years. Um, and, uh, I was a senior in high school at Palisades high school and, um, you know, this started at USC that fall and studying business administration. And when you own an arena like the Forum and you have a hockey team and a basketball team, that takes up about 100 nights a year. So there's another 250 nights that need events. So my father decided that, you know, let, let's try to draw other events and see what might be successful. So he put me in charge of a team when I was 19 years old. It was called the Los Angeles strings of world team tennis. And once I got the job, I said, great, I can drop out of school because who needs school if I have a job? (laughs) And he said, no, you have to stick with school and, and work as well. So if you want the job, you have to do both, but you have to stay in school. And, um, that was a really important lesson to me. I, I really didn't appreciate what that meant, um, you know, to, to pursue my degree. Um, so I uh, ran a team tennis team um, and, you know, had some success and some failures, but it was a small enough platform that it wasn't anything that put us at any big risk. But I learned, I started learning about the, the business, uh, the sports and, and entertainment business at a young age.
4: And I know during that process, we were talking in the green room, you met Billie Jean King, who was a big inspiration for you as well.
1: Yes, Billie Jean King, um, it, She um, they recently made a movie of, of her story, uh, or about the, the Billie Jean King Bobby Riggs match right. that was very influential in my life. Uh, it was held in 1972 or 73, and it was, you know it was billed as the battle of the sexes so you had billy jean king you know playing a man who was really you know uh, hyped it up steve carell did a, a great job uh capturing bobby riggs in the movie emma stone played billy jean king and um it really i thought it was really well done and um but i was an 11 year old kid And my dad um, turned the match on. It was held at the Houston Astrodome, sold out, Battle of the Sexes. And he said, I want you to watch this. And I didn't know anything about tennis or, you know, Mm -hmm. I I didn't watch sports on TV. And he said, I want you to watch this because this is going to change the world. And when he said that, it it made me pay attention. And, And it was so unusual to see a woman you know, compete on an even playing field with a man. Mm-hmm. And that was really ahead of its time and really kind of propelled Billie Jean as a, kind of an icon of the feminist movement of the, the 60s and 70s, which, you know, really, if you know Billie Jean, she she's not, she's about gender equality more than being a, a feminist. Because a feminist kind of sometimes can mean like, you know, women are better than men, but that's not really her message. Her message is about equal opportunity mm. and having, um, you know, collaboration between the sexes and 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 people always having the ability to choose. What you know, uh, you know, it doesn't mean girls have to play with dolls and boys play with trucks. They can do whatever they want to do. And she really was a leader and and very articulate about. Um, those kind of issues when people hadn't really thought about it before.
4: What do you think about all the women and girls who look up to you now as a pioneer in the same way that you look up to Billie Jean King?
1: Um, I know what that... that that was like a transformational moment for me um, seeing a woman be fearless Mm. and you know fight her own battle as opposed to well let me go get my husband to you know play this match for me it was about um, being empowered um, to do things for yourself and stand up for yourself and so if I can inspire another generation then that's really what that's all about is passing it on And, and I don't think of myself as a role model, but I know what that meant for me, and if I am that for other people, then I'm, I'm honored.
4: Where did you get that from? I know you had a great relationship with your dad, and as someone who has a daughter, I know that's an important relationship to mm-hmm. empower your daughter to feel like she can dream and, and do anything. Did you get that from your dad, or who were the people that gave you that courage and that confidence?
1: Uh, you know, it, 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 I, it was... Both my parents, Mm -hmm. but, you know, in particular, my dad never, ever made me doubt myself. And, you know, in the in the times that I had those heart to heart talks with him, he would say, you know, I always I always knew that you could do it. I just need you to know that you can do it. And, you know, that 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 comes that, that really means a lot to, mm-hmm. to somebody who's intimidated going into a situation to know that a person that they admire and, and cares about them believes in you.
4: We'll talk about your dad in a minute, but I wanna stick on the, the education. We've got students here. What advice would you give to students who are sitting in the place you were at at USC and I was at here long ago, mm-hmm. who are trying to find their way in the world and. They want to enter the workforce and, and make their imprint on the world.
1: Um, I, you know, my advice to you is to take every opportunity that's presented to you, even if it doesn't match exactly what your expectations or your aspirations are. You you'll learn about yourself, and maybe you'll learn that you you like something you didn't think you would like, or that you for sure don't like something. So in my career. I, I basically worked in every single department that, that you know, existed at the forum. So I learned how the box office worked. I learned how to sell tickets. I learned how to hang banners on the side of the court. And, um, you know, whatever needed to be done, I, I, it was almost like I had to do it myself so mm. that I knew how to, you know, what things were getting done and how they were getting done. And, you know, that experience helped me move up in the company because then I could manage people that were doing what I had previously done. And, um, I think also advice that I would give is that in, in the sports business, you're always looking for revenue. You're always, you know, trying to figure out where the new revenue streams are gonna come from. You try to increase the amount of revenues that you already bring in, in terms of ticket sales, broadcast, sponsorship. So if you can can be on the side of generating revenue, then you really can write your own ticket because everybody's gonna want you. That makes you golden. So I always like to say that you know I learned on the revenue side of the business um, because when you generate revenue then the other side gets to spend it and that's that, that's your your team operations that are you know getting LeBron James <laughs> right
4: let's transition into talking about your dad i know when we talked about him a few years ago you said one of the traits that he was best at and that you admired he built consensus mm-hmm. he was able to get people on the same page you have a lot of moving parts right now mm-hmm. in your organization. How are you able to build consensus? Or is it a lot harder than he made it look? Maybe, <laughs> maybe he made it look easy.
1: Um, you know, it, it was definitely his, you know, he he, he got his, um, he was known as Dr. Buss. And a lot of people think that was a nickname, but he actually got his PhD in physical chemistry. And he really wanted to be a teacher so that it kind of came naturally for him to, to be, you know, to want to explore explain and connect with people, with individuals. And I think what, um, is difficult in this day and age is people are used to emailing and texting and we're losing that face to face, you more. know, um, conversation. And, and, and for me in particular in where I am in the organization, um, you know, the media has, you know, and, and you have to live with it. You can't, you know, the media is doing their job. That's what they do. And you have to, you can't change what's going on in this landscape. So you have to accept it and be able to work within it. And, you know, the media is so hyper, and stories turn around so quickly that sometimes they come at you so fast that you really. You know, you, you don't even know you know where things are coming from. And so, in particular, for me, there was a story that came out this season, and we've had our challenges this season. and um, it 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 kind of um, made me doubt for a second some of the people that I was working with. And instead of you know calling the 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 media who were reporting it, I sat down with the people that I work with and had face-to-face communication and, and realized that that is what we're dealing with now in this day and age is that the stories come so fast and furious that they try to get you off base and they get you off from the direction that you're headed. And you've got to have faith in the people that you're working with and that trust and communication. And that comes with face-to-face time because texting and email can lose context and tone and you you know you need to you know look somebody in the eyes and um you know really you know restore your faith and restore your direction and and that's important for leadership
4: i know during the season people are running in a lot of different directions but do you have times where you say, okay, Magic and Rob or okay, Luke, or okay, Tim Harris, we need that face to face regular every week or every month meeting.
1: Yes. I mean I think it's it's critical, but you know, like I said, things are happening so fast and especially during the season, you know, if if they're traveling on the road with the team and I'm back in LA or I'm in New York, you know, it's you've really got to make that time and and you know and stay in that, you know, tight circle.
4: You had a quote, we both know, Ramona Shelburne. Yes. And, and I thought this was such an interesting quote. You were talking about magic. And you said, Irvin and I speak the same language because we were raised by the same man. Yeah, Meaning Dr. Buss. Uh, it seems like you and magic are in really good alignment. Mm-hmm. But like you just said, that's been tested this year because there has been a lot of outside noise.
1: Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, and what I what I refer to that is that, you know, when I was 17 years old and my father bought the Lakers, he bought them in May of 1979. In June of 79, he drafted Magic Johnson with the number one pick. And Magic at that time was 19 and had to get special permission to enter the draft as a hardship case, which now obviously we draft kids at 19, so it was he was very a very young player um, to be drafted, and um, he came to LA, and he and my father really developed a relationship that was so special and trusting and magic said you know i want to be a businessman i want to learn from you and so they spent hours upon hours which of course tapped into my dad wanting to be the teacher and so so when Irvin and i sit down and discuss something it's it's from the same point of view we learn from the same person so that's what i mean when i say we speak the same language because we see things the same way
4: so you feel like you guys are aligned despite the outside noise you guys are meeting and and you're aligned on this is what our goals are and what we want to do going forward
1: Yes we're I mean you I mean that's the only way really to to um, you know uh, take on our business operation is to try to like split the two of us, but we're as tight as any two people, any two executives, and we've got you know a mission and a purpose of what we're trying to do, and we're not done yet, and uh, we we still have more to do. But I think we're going in the right direction.
4: There's only two of you. Who breaks the tie?
1: <laughs> oh, I mean, in, in terms of basketball decisions, I will always defer to Magic. I, I mean, his his ability to you know he's brought a vision to, of of the kind of team that. Um, you know, that we're going to build and the, the vision for what Lakers basketball will be. And I think you can you can see that, um, but we still, you know, we're still um, building that roster that, that um, will get us there.
4: This is a tough business because you can lay out the blueprint and have the plan, mm-hmm. but sometimes it doesn't develop whether a player decides they don't want to come or a trade takes place and the player you wanted goes somewhere else. Uh, How do you feel Magic and Rob are with like, we've got plans B, C, D, and E if, if plan A doesn't work. Oh yeah.
1: No, they, they, they know how, they've got everything plotted out and, and, um, and the goals that they're trying to accomplish. I think people have to realize and, and, you know, basketball fans do Laker fans do that, You know, we have to operate under the rules of the collective bargaining agreement, um, which means you can't just go and, you know, grab every player that you want. You have to to do things um, with a salary cap um, and plan uh, your contracts and the timing and the free agency and budget so that you can put the pieces together. So this will be an important offseason for us um, in regards to that plan.
4: I know we were talking earlier, uh, again, about kind of that noise from the outside, and you have a lot of young players on your team, and Mm -hmm. they're impressionable. There were a lot of rumors earlier in the year. Sometimes players read those and and they go, I want to play harder and make sure I stay on this team forever, and other times, hurts your feelings. Um, Where do you see this team right now as far as their makeup Because, look, there were a lot of injuries. There were a lot of things that prevented you guys from getting to where you probably could have gone. You were in the four spot in the West when LeBron got hurt. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was a lot of noise after that. And it goes back to what you said about everyone needing to be aligned. Because Mm -hmm. if the noise outside the locker room infiltrates the locker room, then that's when things could fall apart
1: exactly and and i think that's you said it very well and that's really important and that's what every great organization can will show you that the alignment is from top to bottom and that everybody's pulling in the same direction and you know but you know when you're when you're in one of the largest media markets like los angeles and you have really good talent on your team they're going to be a subject of lots of rumors and, you know, every team wants what we have going for us. So, um, you know, but I, I always look at the human side of things and, you know, these are individuals who, you know, yes, they, they're well aware of what happens in a league that you can be traded at any time before the trade deadline. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, but it's, it's still, it's still hard. And you know when um, the Lakers traded Shaquille O'Neal in the summer of 2004, um, that was hard on all of us because that is a friendship that had developed. And 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 um, you know when he left, we knew that there would be you know comments that would be made. He went on to win a championship as we were rebuilding after he left, and. Um, You know, but there was, you know, the the day he got traded was the first day that we started to build a bridge back to that relationship. So when he did retire from the NBA, he he asked that we retire his number while my father was still alive because he wanted to make sure that that you know, that was repaired, Um, and you know, of course, we've not only retired his number, but we've also uh, dedicated a Shaquille O'Neal statue at Staples Center, and um, Shaquille opened a a restaurant across the street at LA Live that uh, I'm an investor in. So, you know, that that friendship, you know, it's kind of like, if somebody gets traded, it doesn't mean I'm gonna stop following them on Instagram. Like I, you know, I I want our players to do well. I care about them, and that's really important because, you know, yes, the the years that they're competing and in the NBA, it's a competitive business, but, you know, these are relationships and friendships and memories that are gonna be built around people, not just a logo, and, you know, that's important to me.
4: Well, and they last after basketball, like you just pointed out with Shaquille. I know you and Kobe are still tight. And, I mean, that's one of the things about the Laker organization is you remember the greats, and they're still very involved in the organization. I know that has a lot to do with you.
1: Yeah, I mean, but, you know, we also have, you know, Devin George and Robert Ori and Derek Fisher. And, you know, uh, every every guy stops by, and and they're always welcome, you know, that – If they were part of of the team at one point, then there's always that connection.
4: I want to talk about LeBron because obviously that was the news of last summer when LeBron decided to sign with the Lakers. And, you know, I know that was such an exciting time because uh, you were trying to attract a top-tier free agent, and I don't think they come any bigger than LeBron James. Um, LeBron fills the seats. Mm -hmm. He brings sponsorships, TV ratings, like he is a big mega brand in and of himself. But he also brings a microscope. And he (laughs) brings a lot of noise with him. Is the noise louder than you thought it might be?
1: Um, You know, we're a a team that has gotten used to you know uh, big personalities and so i think we're uniquely qualified Mm -hmm. to cope with that kind of scrutiny and that kind of microscope um really what's important to me is that you know he chose to come and be part of what we're building and um you know, I I want him to be successful during his time as a Laker, and he's been uh, wonderful to work with. Um, you know, it's it it was frustrating for him to have the injury and to miss more games than he's ever missed in his career, and um, it's it's hard for him to not play. He wants to play, and you know it's you know, we got to look at the big picture and uh, we want him to to get to be a hundred percent and be ready for next season. And, um, you know, we expect big things next season.
4: I think people look at the fact he's got three years left on his contract. Mm -hmm. So, and he's getting older and he had his longest injury that he's ever had this year. So you start thinking about the window for the first time and, and three years left. What do you do to be able to maximize the opportunities for him and the rest of the team, but within that three-year window?
1: Well, I I mean, I think, you know, before he ever made his decision to join the Lakers, he met with magic. They talked for hours about what they both, the expectations that they were both bringing, um, to him joining the Lakers and, you know, magic has a plan and we're going to get there. And, You know, it's just, we have to have things fall into place. And yes, it it might be the most, you know, longest time he's had missed games for injury, but I also know how hard he works and how uh, phenomenal of an athlete he is and the dedication that he has. So I'm not concerned that he's gonna, you know, I know he's gonna come back 100% and ready to go for next season.
4: Yeah. And again, uh, it seems like a lot of excitement and definitely, you know, we haven't really talked about the business side yet, but you guys are one of the healthiest, if not the healthiest NBA franchises on the business side and the the Forbes values are (laughs) always very good, but uh, that is going extremely well for you.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, there's a team of couple hundred miles up north that are you know they've set like a new bar Mm -hmm. for what they're doing I um, went and uh, toured their new arena that's opening up this fall Um, as a matter of fact they announced that the Lakers are playing we're playing up there in their first basketball game in the new building and that new building is you know they've really thought things through and they're bringing you know, setting a new bar for what uh, a venue can be um, in, in terms of fan experience. And, uh, you know, they've, they've really invested a lot. And, you know, but th- that just makes me want to try harder and <laughs> beat them.
4: <laughs> what have they done? A few things. I mean, obviously, they've drafted well and they have good players. But what have they done beyond that that has made them Sustain the success it wasn't one championship and that was it. They've been able to sustain this for several years now
1: um, I think it's the leadership, you know from the business side and Rick Welts um, in ownership with Joe Lakeup and Peter Guber um, And the basketball sob side with Bob Myers and Steve Kerr. I think that they are you know, you talk about a, a, a organization that's all on the same page all you know, with the same goals, the same focus, um, and you know, they really are a model franchise.
4: And they seem like they're in alignment. And they've had some outside noise on some things too, and they they seem like they've Stuck in, in pretty good alignment.
1: Well, you know, they're they're the champs. So everybody's gonna take their their punch at them. So, you know, they I think Steve Kerr with his experience as a player and as a coach, he'll keep he'll keep things going just fine.
4: I noticed recently uh, that you retweeted the She's Got Balls article yeah. from Sports <laughs> Illustrated. You pointed out the origin of the avatar, which was from yes. that article.
5: Yes.
4: Um, when people see you in a setting like this or they see you on the media, what are two or three adjectives that you want them to use to describe you if they're looking at Jeannie Bus?
1: Um, you know, uh, um, that... That things that I do are with purpose and thought and care and um, you know honoring the legacy of a franchise that was you know beloved even before my father bought the team and successful, um, you know, having moved to Los Angeles from Minneapolis, and you know really carrying on the um, you know, the, the, the legacy. And when I say that it it sounds, you know, we, we opened up a a new practice facility two years ago. And in that process of design, it was really important that we honor the legacy, but we don't bury the future Mm, with it. And so, um, you know, it, it, as you'll see that if you ever get a chance to see the facility, because we do play our South Bay Laker G League games there. So it is open to the public, um, you know, that everything is subtle and, you know, it is it's there for the 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 new players, the young players to write their their chapter in laker history so i probably gave you too long of an answer for your your question but you know that that i'm i'm respectful of the brand that is bigger than any one owner or any one player or any one coach that um you know that that it's it's a brand that unites a city that is very diverse and spread out and um you know you know everybody can come together under the purple and gold flag.
4: But what about for you personally? When they see you, how do you want people to see you?
1: Um, you know, um, as we were talking earlier, that that um, uh, as a woman in business and, you know, I, I take my... Um, you know, people swipe at anybody in position of power, but that um, that I stand up for what I, I believe in, for my own convictions, for what's important to me and what we're trying to accomplish with the Lakers.
4: Last time we sat down at USC, uh, we were saying it was a long time ago, a lot has happened. So uh, one of the things was Jim was still running basketball operations. Yes. Yes. Now, obviously, as we've discussed, Magic is. Your family, correct me if I'm wrong, owns sixty-six percent of the Lakers. Each of the six siblings owns eleven percent or roughly yes. about you're you obviously that. the board of governor. Yes. But you had to make some really tough decisions, Jeannie. And and I really did think about you a lot when you were going through that. And I thought, man, that that's gotta be tough. But the she's got balls thing, like <laughs> you you kick some ass on that. Like you, you I'm sure it was hard. But I saw a side of you that I was like, OK, I, I've kind of been waiting for this side of Jeannie to emerge.
1: And, and you know, it's unfortunate and, and really for anybody who's like pre-law or law school, it's a very fascinating kind of situation. Because what happened was it was really important to my father that the team stay in the family. And usually assets of that size passing to the next generation, there's so much in inheritance taxes that usually what happens is that asset has to be sold. Mm. And my dad saw it time and time again in ownership in the different leagues, and he didn't want that to happen to our family. So he spent 10 years transferring the Laker stock into a trust, which would benefit his six children and so um you know it's complicated so i don't want to get like too boring but so th- it so it's like we don't individually own each 10 percent. it's owned by a trust of which we are beneficiaries of and my father put me in charge mm-hmm. and gave me the authority if anything was damaging I like to say that my dad had six kids, but the Lakers were his baby. Mm-hmm. And he put me in charge of taking care of the baby so that the baby would be healthy and survive. And so there was a situation where that wasn't happening. And it, it, it was gonna tear things apart, which would have really made it impossible for us to keep the team, which is what my dad's intention was. So I had to do what he asked me to do, which he gave me the authority to make the changes that I had to. And when it came to that, to that time, I did. And unbeknownst to me, there was a campaign on the other side mm-hmm. to oust me from, that, from my position. But clearly, the way the documents were and as a, a judge agreed, I, was, I had the authority and, and therefore that's why i retain control of the team
4: not to get too personal but have have fences been mended and i know in every family you know especially if you have siblings i have siblings too there can be little spats and disagreements but have you been able to somewhat repair or was that really a that was a tough one
1: I, it, it's hard when when people don't see things the same way mm. and i you know i it, it, there has to be compromise you know to get there and and clearly Um, we couldn't make, we couldn't see things the same way. And I, you know, I had to do what my father asked me to do. And so it was very difficult for me, but I think, you know, when you put on your business hat, everything becomes very clear. And so, um, my brothers are still, you know, beneficiaries of the trust that own the Laker stock. And, so I I they they make a nice distribution and that's my job is to, as you know head of the organization is to increase the shareholder value right. and you know increase uh, the cash flows.
4: What you're doing. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> a few uh quick hitting topics and we're going to allow the audience to ask some questions too so get your best questions ready. Uh Luke Walton, I know you've always been fond of Luke my personal opinion it's just my opinion is that he hasn't really had a full deck to work with since he's been here and maybe if he did there'd be difference and and there would be playoffs Uh, what are your thoughts on luke and again i know you know he played here as a laker so you talked about the the connection with shaq earlier Mm -hmm. and kobe There's probably a different level of a connection with Luke too. It's not like you just brought someone in that you had never met before.
1: Right. And, and he also like, there's a whole other chapter of my life, um, where, you know, I was for 15 years, um, the significant other of Phil coach, Phil Jackson. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Phil used to think, uh, he used to say, you know, um, Bill Walton may be, uh, you know, Bill Walton may be Luke's dad, but Luke is my son. Like, are you know, like something like that? It was very Star Warsy kind of thing. But <laughs> <laughs> so it's like you know, Luke has has always been um, you know somebody that. Um, You know, he came to the Lakers as a rookie the last year of um, Shaq and Kobe. Um, So he kind of bridged two two, uh, Lakers teams in the Shaq-Kobe era and then in what you would call the Kobe-Pow era. And, um, you know, he is somebody, I think, who – doesn't even realize how what a natural he is and what a and, and that leadership that he has in terms of um, you know the you know getting people connecting with people in in all ages and i think he's done a terrific job i was just told yesterday that um the lakers had the most Uh, games lost to injury of any team so Hmm. yes you're right I think there was five games where he had the complete roster at his disposal and that's a that's a challenge for a coach um, you know to constantly be changing uh, lineups and uh, you know it's it's hard but you know we we were in a position where things were all Going the right way, and, and we beat Golden State on Christmas Day, right. which was a great present for me, And then, <laughs> but then also LeBron got hurt, and so it just, you know, it, it, it really puts a lot of pressure on the coaching situation in terms of, you know, what he's able to do when he's, when he's shorthanded with players.
4: If he's the coach going forward, do I you am have? I'm not
1: going to hear the answer that No, but that I question. would imagine
4: he's someone that you have faith in. Like of you just course, said, he's got of great just, pedigree. I've,
1: yeah, I mean, I think he's he is a hard worker, and he is somebody that players gravitate towards. Right. And um, you know, he's he's I think done an incredible job under a lot of challenging circumstances.
4: All right, a few other things I want to cover with you: security at games. Mm -hmm. Um, we saw what happened in Utah with Russell Westbrook. Um, Blake Griffin had an incident with a fan in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. In your opinion, as an owner and someone who goes to the Board of Governors meetings, do we need to do more to protect the players or were those kind of uh, outliers and and things that don't normally happen?
1: I think what you're seeing is uh, it's really important that we protect the integrity of the game and the, the, we protect the players and the officials, the referees, because as sports betting becomes more and um. more mainstream and accepted, you're going to, you know, the heat is going to, you know, it's, it's already enough that when you're, you know, cheering for your hometown team, but now you add on to it, you know, wagering and, and things like that, it's gonna it's gonna be that much more intense. And so we we have to to protect the players, protect the officials, so that the game can be played under the best of circumstances. But it, it is it's, that's a really you know, big challenge going forward as we see sports betting become more and more accepted. And I'm proud of the fact that the NBA, You know, in in leadership and our commissioner, Adam Silver, um, you know, led the charge, knowing that um, wagering is a big part of the fan experience all over the world. And we're just now catching up. We'd we'd really like to see it done under federal guidelines as because right now it's I think eight states right. that have legalized uh, sports betting, but we're going to see that happen more and more, and um, you know that's going to make people even more passionate if it's that, if that's even possible about the outcomes of games.
4: Uh, I'll use that to transition into like the in-game experience, which mm-hmm. this is going to be a big part of the in-game experience. We have our friends from Boingo here, wireless at games. You can order food at games. Like There's so many things you can do right from your phone. I remember you told me uh, when we talked last time that when you built Staples Center, you were going to put like electronic seats and people were going to order from the seats. Right. And, and now everyone does it from their phone. But the in-game experience what are you focusing on to always try and use the technologies that exist today to make that a better experience for the fans?
1: Um, You know, even before a fan leaves to go to the venue, you know, um, giving them reports on traffic, Hmm. you know, where parking options are, you know, which way to enter, um, you know, I I think that um, we have to deliver an experience that's seamless, easy, enjoyable, because, uh, you know, it's important to win games, but if if the fan has a, a, a terrible experience, um, you know, in terms of waiting in long lines, you know, missing part of the game because they can't get in through the turnstile because security's slow, um, you know, really upgrading and making sure that the fan experience that... It, it, um, you know, because we're not only competing with, you know, other entertainment options, but we're competing with just staying home and watching it on a broadcast.
4: Right. Well, and I would say of all the teams in the NBA, you have the most number of VIPs. I mean, maybe in New York, but you're dealing with some really important people. I live in Portland, and, and we don't have nearly the celebrities that come to the games as you do. So it's even more important that those fans are taken care of and feel important when they come to the games.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a, if you've been to a Laker game at Staples Center, we have a unique way of lighting you know, the court. And we make sure that that first row, that – You know those floor seats the jack nicholson seats um you know are part of that experience part of the lighting so everybody can see um who's sitting on the floor and then the the rest of the crowd is 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 not lit as well so it really it's like a boxing match like it, it keeps your attention right on the court um So, yeah, we do have VIPs. But to us, you know, every Laker fan is a VIP. And if you only come to one Laker game a year, you've got to have a great experience too, not just the people that that are regulars.
4: I love on your Instagram you uh, post pictures of you with some of your friends at the game. You probably get hit up all the time for, hey, Jeannie, can I get tickets? Or how do you, at the beginning of the season, how do you decide, like, I'm going to map out who's going to come to the games with me, or is it spur of the moment? How does that work?
1: Well, I, I mean, I can share a conversation I just had with you uh, with Zachary Levi, who has a movie coming out this weekend called Shazam. Oh, yeah. And I had—I um, was really hoping he was going to be able to come to a game because he, he was in L.A. promoting the film. And I had um, two seats on the floor for him. And I sent him a text, and I said... If if you can't if you can't make the game, then I'm gonna give the tickets to Aquaman. Ah. Jason Momoa <laughs> is also a friend, <laughs> so I was gonna pit the two superheroes, but um, neither of them were able to come. So, but yeah, it's it's you know it's I get a lot of instant friends because of of uh, the Lakers and the popularity, especially with having LeBron James on the team. Mm.
4: No kidding. Uh, Staples Center. You guys have been there, what, 20 years now? Yeah, we're
1: coming up on 20 years. So
4: a lot of times with arenas, I'm always amazed at how quick people say, oh, the arena has outlived its, you know, it needs to be remodeled or we need a new arena. Is Staples Center, I haven't been in there a while, but is it a place where you feel like, hey, we can be here for a long time? Does it need to be remodeled? How does that work?
1: Um, you know, we, we have a great partnership with AEG. And they are a leader in venue management and building and design. So now, that, especially that LA is has been awarded the Olympics in 2028. You know, I know that they're going to keep the building mm-hmm. in great shape and you know continue continue to evolve as new technologies come in. And um, you know, it, it's hard to believe that we've been there 20 years. We, when we left the forum, you know, it was we'd been at the forum for 42 years, and you know, we really, <laughs> we really managed to, to make that building successful. And when you know the decision was made to move downtown, which was a lot different than being in Inglewood, and um, you know, our fans were afraid that we were going to leave our, you know, our energy, our mojo back at the forum. And, you know, I remember having one conversation with a season C holder because that I volunteered to talk to C- season C holders during that move because it was difficult and we wanted to be able to explain, you know, why this was important f- to keep the, the team competitive. And the person said, well, I want the same seats at Staples Center <laughs> that I have at the forum. And I said, Okay, well, you can have your seats at the forum, but the Lakers won't be there. So, you know, but what was great was that first year we won a championship in the new building. And after that, nobody ever looked back. So I recommend to every team moving into a new arena, win a championship because it makes everything easy.
4: Uh, Resting players. I've talked to Adam about this. I've talked to David a little bit about this, but. I think it's one of the biggest problems in the NBA right now. And I say this because if someone, like I'll use the March 19th game in Milwaukee as an example, the only time in Milwaukee that LeBron James is coming and that Giannis and LeBron can go against each other. And what's happening is people are either coming from far distances or they pay their hard-earned money to come to the games and there's load management or maintenance or things like that. And I know it's hard because analytics sometimes say, like, you have to rest the player or they're going to get severely injured and break down. Mm-hmm. But you also have the fans who are saying, oh, I'm so disappointed that I don't get to see the people that I paid money to see. Is there a solution to this?
1: Well, it, it's funny because because I grew up in tennis promotion. You know, we used to do a, a tournament at the forum and people a month before the tournament started, they go, "Well, who's playing on Sunday?" Well, it's a tournament. You have to, right. you know. We never, we never sold tickets to the final that you hoped, you know, the right. one, the first seed versus the second seed. So I think, you know, people who are true sports fans understand injury, you know, uh, uh, you know th- those things happen, and you know, and it, it's unfortunate. You know, it, it, it isn't any any place anybody wants to be. But we've learned so much about training and dynamics. And, you know, when you can have a Kobe Bryant play for 20 years, you know, that that's, you know, um, that's important when you, when you develop a star that you want them to play as long as possible. Mm. And so there is a balance that you have to make, um, you know, and, and again, the, the leadership of the NBA, we are, you know, it, what's really important to us is that the, the wellness of our players and not only, um, rehabbing from injury but preventing the injury from ever happening and so i think it's evolving and and figuring out and as a matter of fact you know we've um uh made the regular season longer to avoid back-to-back games Mm -hmm. um you know and really trying to make the scheduling uh, more equitable for all the teams that have to travel a greater distance um you know, so I, I think we just, you know, we have leadership that thinks out of the, the box and tries new things and tries to improve on the the health and wellness of our players. And I think that's the most important thing.
4: I know this could potentially cost everyone a lot of money. And I, have like I said, talked to Adam and David about Don't this. Don't get
1: me fined.
4: No, but shorten the season. Like, there's 82 games if you shorten the season to 60 games or 70 games, yes, there's less games, there's less revenue, but there's a little more urgency to the games. And also you don't have that wear and tear on the players. So maybe they're able to play more. And you know, I know Bill Simmons and others have suggested maybe there's a mid season tournament or something that could generate revenue to replace those 12 games you're shaving off the schedule. But, You sit in the Board of Governors meetings. Does it ever get talked about where people go, you know, maybe we could look at shortening the schedule a little bit so that we're not playing as many games and don't have to worry about our assets, our star players getting hurt? I
1: mean, I think that's what when Adam Silver became the commissioner in 2013, um, you know, nothing was. You know, etched in stone. He he said he would look at everything and and you know I, I appreciate leadership like that. I think you know we discuss a lot of different ways to go about the same thing that you're saying. There is something about you know 82 games, the tradition. That's you know and to to, to go backwards from that you know affects revenues, which then affects the guaranteed part to the players. You know, it, it's, it's, that's a big thing to do. I understand where, you know, it, it, it's fun to think about and, and come up with solutions. And, and if that's what the, you know, consensus is, then I'm sure we'll continue to discuss it.
4: Sticking on the players, this was a recent topic. Uh, mental health for players. So yes. Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan have been very outspoken this year about it. I think it's super brave. It's uh, something that needs to be talked about more by not just athletes, but everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that, you know, Adam Silver recently said there are a lot of players who are generally unhappy, which I was kind of surprised by. He said a lot of players, you know, expressed that to him. But I guess if you think about it, you're spending a lot of time alone on the road. Mm-hmm. You're traveling a ton. Mm-hmm. You're away from your family. You're away from your friends. If you really think about it, I can see how someone would go. Okay, you know, maybe I'm not the happiest person in the world. But what can the NBA do to make sure that mental health and that players are healthy and happy?
1: You know, the the, the NBA has started a, a mel- mental health and wellness initiative. Um, that's for us. Um, partnering with UCLA Health has been um, such a wonderful resource for us um, that we have partnered with them in terms of what we can offer. And and you have to think about, and this I learned from Phil Jackson, you, you, you can't think about just the player, you have to think about all the people that surround them, their, their, their parents, their spouse, their children, and how the season affects them as well. For example, um, in September just before the, we start training camp the Sunday before we have a family picnic with just the players and their families and we bring in, you know, games and and you know just make it so kid friendly because we know that you know the disconnect's going to happen because now their their father's going to go to work and be traveling a lot and we want them to have some family time where they can not be worried about media or are doing anything other than enjoying their family and getting to know each other as we go into training camp and those kind of things are really important to realize that we're a family and you know um, people have pressures and challenges not only from playing the game but just what the game you know the sacrifices they have to make because of the game
4: so that's a transition into my last question for you before we open it up to the audience you're very busy uh, a lot of people wanting a lot of different things from you Mm -hmm. how do you balance life and what do you enjoy doing in order to kind of keep everything uh prioritized and and happy in your life
1: um you know i i have you know, a dog, a a pet that, that, um, you know, I connect with and is a, a great stress reliever just going for a walk with the dog. Um, I also, I talk a lot about, um, you know, I, I, you know, challenged myself and took a stand-up comedy class this past summer. I saw that. And I, I you know, I started to write my own jokes and material. so I, I challenged myself. Doing new things, I think, is really important um, to, you know, just kind of um, reset your mind and, and do something that really takes you away from what you do every day. And I always, uh, you know, I try to go to the movies every weekend like, to a movie theater, because that's the industry in L.A., mm. you know? Like, every every city has, you know, kind of the, you know, what... Um, grows their economy and and what gives people jobs and we're in the entertainment business and so you know just as so many of the entertainment industry own Lakers season seats I feel I have to do the same and and go to the movies every weekend.
4: Is there a movie that you've seen recently that you were like oh I just love that?
1: um i you know i usually like every movie i see <laughs> wow you're uh, an
4: easy audience yeah i yeah I,
1: I mean i you know i like horror films i haven't seen us yet so i'm planning to see that and i want to see shazam of course i love superhero movies and um you know that's that's about it
4: and at usc i asked you about uh, hoverboards no hoverboards No, (laughs) No, not me. You're avoiding. Not me. Me too. All right, let's open it up for questions. We've got the crowd mic right here. Raise your hand if you uh, have a question for Jeannie. Maybe state your name as well.
3: Uh, Hi, my name is Max. Is that good? Okay. Uh, Obviously a big Laker fan. Um, I'm from Portland, Oregon, actually, though, but um, we still have some big pockets of support out there, so... Just to let you know that. Uh, my question today uh, is: Do you have any advice for people like me that are entering the sports business world or sports law, um, and the complex and competitive field that it is? And also, secondly, uh, what has been the guiding principle for uh, your journey towards success throughout your life?
1: Um, well, I, I would, you know, I would recommend that you really, if you're going to go into law, I think that's a great idea. Um, You know, so many, for example, our general manager, Rob Palenka, who was an agent for players like Kobe Bryant before he came on this side as a general manager, he he has a law degree, and that really, you know, makes him, how he approaches things and and solves problems, I think that's a a really good background to have. Um, In terms of success, I think, you know, you know, always showing up, you know, um, doing what is expected of you and, and living up to your word. You know, and that, that's something that my father always taught me is that um, if you're if you say you're gonna do something, do it because your reputation is so valuable.
4: Great answer. Other questions? And Raise your hand. Thank you
1: for wearing the Laker shirt. Makes me feel
4: at home. <laughs> the old school Lakers shirt, too, it looks like. Come on, other questions. There's one in the back.
0: Hi, I'm Catherine, and I kind of wanted to go back to what you were speaking about before when you were talking about the women empowerment and um, being a woman in this industry. So I kind of, especially in the light of Nike's Dream Crazier commercial and how that really resonated with and the impact they were able to make with that, I just wanted to see where you see that message resonating within the sports industry now, if that's making any sort of waves. And in other words, kind of how much crazier do women need to dream before those dreams aren't just crazy and they're just dreams? Um,
1: you know, it's like you never, you never want to stop dreaming, but you know, when I was your age, there weren't that kind of opportunities that there are now. And, you know, I thought that Nike really, you know, hit a home run with that message um, because, you know, I I don't I don't think that anything isn't possible. You just have to visualize it. And, um, you know, for me, um, I was a product of Title IX, meaning when I was in high school, they told me I was on the girls golf team. And I said, but I don't even play golf. And they said, well, we'll teach you. Because if we don't have a girls team, we can't have a boys team. Mm-hmm. And um, that was a great opportunity that I didn't even realize was put right into my lap because of people like Billie Jean King and um, the dream of, uh, of having every opportunity. And, and it's important to me that it isn't like separate but equal, that it's about being at the same table that, that um, you know, um, so I, all the, these um, women athletes and, um, you know, who now compete in college, who, who dedicate themselves to being athletes and, you know, um, get scholarships and compete in college, well, unless you're in the WNBA or an ice skater or a tennis player, there's, n- there's no place to earn money as a professional athlete as a female. So because of that, a few years ago, I partnered with uh, the guy that started the Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling back in the 80s, and it's 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 an inspiration for a TV show that's on uh, Netflix now called Glow. And we've reimagined it, and it's now called WOW Women of Wrestling. And the reason that I, I invested in that product is because there's not a lot of opportunities for women to compete that they can you know, be showcased, that they get the center ring. And um, you know, what's, you know, what WOW stands for is that women fight their own battles. I mean, it's still good versus evil, it's wrestling, but the, the women fight for what they believe in, whether it's right or wrong, and they don't have to run to a man to save them. So um, you know, I, I want to see more opportunities for women, but I also want to see women supporting other women in sports, and you know, and the, and those opportunities will grow and grow. When revenue can be generated from a sport, any event, then it's it's going to make it. I've been involved in a lot of leagues that don't make it, but the, you know, you gotta you gotta carry your weight, and you know sell tickets, and be a business, a viable business.
4: A couple of other questions. Raise your hand. We've got one right here. So
5: I want to start by saying I'm from New York. So even though I love watching Lakers play, I'm a a Knicks fan at heart.
4: What's your name? Kendall Cooper. Okay.
5: And uh, there's, like, complications that I would say my Knicks organization is having at the top. Um, So as an owner... You talked about like the, the communication that's needed between the GM, the president and yourself, the owner. So how do you balance creating revenue with trying to win and like bring in good players?
1: Um, you know, I, it's, um, you know, you, you have to be on the same page, you have to be pulling in the same direction and, and what happens is that um, it's hard to be patient in this business and, uh, the media in New York is, I would say the toughest of any market, (laughs) but, um, if you, if you, you know, keep your circle tight and, and you, um, stick to a plan, then I think you'll see, um, the, the success. And, you know, I, am I, um, Admire that um, the Knicks are, you know, one of the premier franchises. They, you know, people, you know, those games sell out every game, and the fans are real and they love their team. and <laughs> It's, it's, it's difficult when your team's not successful. And I, I, you know, it's been six years that we haven't been in the playoffs, so it's hard for me to say. Um, you know, what they need to do, because we need to focus on what we need to do. And, um, you know, but this is a competitive sports world, and there are teams that have really managed to be successful um, throughout all the challenges, so there really is no excuses. It's just really sticking to your plan, which I think is important.
4: I know we had a question back there
1: Hi, my name's Maddie. i um, going off of Kat's question. I know you said when you were 19, you managed the... Blee? LA Strings, yes. The LA Strings. Um, do you feel like that really helped you in the industry of being a female owner of the Lakers, like um, earning respect, or do you feel like you have to prove yourself even more now? Um, I I started as Um, assistant or alternate governor is what they call it in the NBA in um, 1995 or 96 and so I attended the board of governors meetings with my father and um, it was very intimidating because there was I think one other woman and she worked for the NBA in this room of very successful highly competitive men and I thought there's no way I'm ever going to, you know, um, be a peer of, of these guys sitting in this room. So what I decided to do is that as each new owner came in that that I would be the seasoned veteran Smart. and I would reach out my hand to them to kind of show them the ropes. And so the first new owner after I came in was Mark Cuban. And so he was somebody that um, kind of threatened the old guard because he was a billionaire. Yeah. He's very young and very outspoken. And he almost didn't get approved by the board because you know they didn't really know where he was coming from and what he was going to bring to the league. And now when you look at... at, at um, You know, his success as an owner and and as a a media personality on Shark Tank, um, you know, you know, I just I built my own circle of of owners and friends. And and since that time, we've we've turned over probably two thirds of the the ownership. And so, you know, I count among my great friends, people like Wick Grossbeck, who's the governor of the Boston Celtics and Wes Edens and Mark Lazary, who are the Milwaukee Bucks ownership. And, um, you know, th- that's how I went about the, the, the intimidating room that, that was the Board of Governors. Now there's a, lo- a lot more women. Uh, Loreen Jobs came in as a part owner of the Washington team, um, the um, wife of Tom Benson. Uh, is now Gail Benson is now uh, the governor for the New Orleans team and so there are, are women in top positions uh, in marketing, legal, um, you know across teams across the league, across our broadcast partners and other entities that we deal with. So you know uh, you know there's there's you know, a lot of it a lot of change has taken place in the last 20 25 years.
4: It's funny I was listening to uh, Mark Cuban on Dan Gilbert's new podcast. He has a new podcast and he was saying that when he first came into the league, Mark Cuban he said after the meeting he asked David Stern like are we allowed to talk in here cuz no one said anything <laughs> and he said now I feel like we need a 24 second shot clock because people talk so much that we need to like move on to the next person. Do you is that kind of how it is in there?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a very interesting group of people because all very highly successful in their own right, right. in their own respective businesses. And now they have to collaborate and get along with 29 other people. And so it's, it's, it's interesting, and you know, I've had my share of clashes with um, different ownership groups, but that's, you know, at the end of the day, what's the most important thing, and, and my father, Dr. Buss, was a leader in this, that he, you know, sometimes if there, there was something that maybe wasn't the best thing for the Lakers individually, he would always put the league hmm. and the needs of the league before his own team. And that selfish selfishness was really important in the growth of the NBA. And, um, you know, he should re- be remembered for that because it was remarkable.
4: The last question I'll ask you is uh, I know when we talked last time, you said that you, you kept his glasses, his seeing yes, glasses. Yes. Do you still look through them sometimes yes. to see the world as he did?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, um, he. what I do a lot of times is I um, watch his speech from the Basketball Hall of Fame. And, and you know, he. it was really an emotional speech for him to make, but it really talks about what the team and the league and, you know, Um, the opportunity that owning the Lakers gave him, and that inspires me.
4: Well, Jeannie, thank you so much for making the time to join us today. I know you have an incredibly busy schedule. I wish you nothing but success in the future. I think you do a great job. You are a uh, great example for for many, many people. Let's give Jeannie Buss a big hand. (laughs) I also quickly just want to say thank you to Loyola Marymount for hosting us. Let's give LMU a big hand. Thank you to our friends from Boingo for powering Sports Business Radio and our road show. Thank you so much. This will be uh, available on our podcast on iTunes and Spotify. So if you don't already subscribe to the Sports Business Radio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, download it and you'll be able to hear this conversation thank you so much and Jeannie. thank you again now here's brian's interview with tennis icon and
3: espn tennis commentator chris evert from august 2016
4: my guess is tennis icon Chris Everett. She is the winner of 18 Grand Slam titles. She has a 90% win percentage. She won 125 consecutive matches on clay and at least one major title for 13 years in a row, records that still stand today. And she is now a broadcaster with ESPN. You can find her on Twitter at Chrissy Evert. Chris, how are you? Thanks for joining us.
2: I'm good. Thank you. How
4: are you doing? I'm doing well. I know you've had uh, travels, so I appreciate you getting up and uh, doing this conversation. No, no problem. So let's go back to the 1970s when you burst on the scene at the 1971 U.S. Open. You know, I look at Serena and Venus Williams, Tiger Woods, LeBron James, prodigies in recent times. What was it like being a prodigy in the 1970s? How bright was that spotlight and what were the expectations of you?
2: Um, it was uh, a little overwhelming. I mean, but at the same time, you know, we didn't have social media. We didn't have, I mean, we didn't have half of the um, attention and the spotlight that these stars nowadays have. So, I mean, I was basically. Um, 16 years old, I went into the U.S. Open, I was, I just won the National 18, so I was number one player in the country, junior player in the country. I had really not much experience uh, in women's tournaments, and, uh, you know, they put me on center court the first match, and I remember I beat the number one player in Germany, 6-love, (laughs) 6-love, so it was like, oh, oh, this isn't that tough, (laughs) so I was thinking, I was like, wow, isn't that tough? And then um, I just remember that U.S. Open was like a fairy tale, because they put I was on center court every single match, and I had I think three upsets of top women players, and I reached the semifinals, and then I had to play Billie Jean King, who was you know, number one in the world at that time. And but I mean I was staying at my aunt and uncle's house in Larchmont, driving in every day, and when I would go back, I'd still have to. You know, do the dishes and fold my laundry, and I mean, <laughs> I, I'm just a typical, you know, schoolgirl, sixteen-year-old schoolgirl. But you know, all of a sudden, I'm being interviewed by you know Howard Cosell and Bud Collins, and and it was, I, you know, I don't know, it, it was a bit overwhelming. But you know, I think I had a, really that kind of temperament that I was pretty cool and calm about it, so I I, I didn't become ruffled and I didn't let it affect me.
4: You know, today you see the academies like the one you have, and and people really show you the ropes when you're a youngster. Did anyone take you aside and say, okay, now things are going to go real fast for you. Here's how you handle it.
2: You know, my dad was my coach. And, again, um, he was very low-key, and he was very humble. And and as soon as I got back... um, from the US Open, I remember my whole school came out with the school band, (laughs) (laughs) the airplanes, you know, I had a thousand people there with the school band and went right back to school and had to make a speech, like my first speech ever for the first time. And I remember then, you know, Life Magazine, Time Magazine, I remember I I was, a lot of people were uh, trying to get some uh, press and, and I was in demand. And I remember my dad, you know, really put his foot down and said, no, I mean, she she needs to practice. I mean, she hasn't really achieved that much yet, and and we're going to, you know, keep her down to earth, and we're not going to get totally um, uh, overawed with this whole, you know, limelight thing. so he was, thank God I had a parent like him who was, again, very low-key and very humble, and he just wanted me to go back to Fort Lauderdale and go to school, and practice you know my game at the end of the day
4: so you came from a very grounded family you were the first female yes. athlete to earn a million dollars in endorsements i remember your lipton ice tea commercials your converse commercials what were some of your favorite uh commercials that you did and just overall favorite partnerships
2: actually i think it was the first million dollars in prize money i think that was what i i was known for because um the endorsements weren't publicly, you know, what I'm saying. I mean, the public really didn't know how much I was making, okay. how much anybody was making endorsements. But um, Lipton ice tea definitely was one of the first ones. And but I had long term uh, relationships with Wilson, probably more than anything. And Rolex watches, and I mean, I had some good endorsements. And um, you know, because it, I was young and sort of. <clears throat> innocent, and, you know, sort of, I think the people could, they really grew up with me, because I started my career at 16, I retired at 34, so they knew, the American people especially, saw me grow up, and who I was dating, and what was going on in my life, and, you know, through marriage, and having children, and I think that, um, you know, I was approachable, I think mean, that was the bottom line, so I was very lucky to have some good, some good endorsements.
4: When people came to you then and or if they come to you today and they say we want to partner with you on something what are some of the elements you look for from a, an endorsement partnership
2: It's always been long term. I mean, I very rarely do one pop, you know, one year of a pop thing like a you know, a big contract for a year, uh, a big contract for two years. I usually I like to do long term make long-term commitments and I think even you know I had a really good manager from IMG back when I was in my early 20s and um, my dad managed me up until like 24 25 and he realized that he didn't have the the resources so I went with IMG and I had a really nice manager Bob Kane who when he set me up with endorsements it would be with Wilson or with a clothing line or whatever for 10 15 years because you know he, he he thought it was really important to think about life after tennis and not just during tennis. And then when you retire, you look around, there's nothing left. So I, and I think IMG was really good about that because they started the Arnold Palmer and and they started the Jack Nicklaus. You know they worked with them and they're still earning great money right now and they're in their 70s.
4: And you have a company now, Chrissy by Tail, which I want to ask you about here in a moment. But how has your partnerships with the other companies you just mentioned helped you be the president and CEO of Chrissy by Tail?
2: Well, I think that companies see that I'm loyal and I stick to, you know, what I believe in and I'm into building a company. I have um, a tennis academy, which you mentioned in, in Boca that, that has been going on for 20 years now. And, again, it wasn't a flash in the pan. And I have a charity tennis tournament that's been going on for 25 years now. And, you know, ESPN, this is my fifth year, but I have another four-year contract. So I really I stick to my company through mm-hmm. thick and thin. You know, and I think that Chrissy by Tail, um, you know, I always wanted to have a clothing line to fit, like, real women. You know, whether it was tennis moms or women's league players or, you know, competitive players on the WGA Tour, I always, I wanted to have, I wanted to put some of my ideas and some of the styles that I wore in the 70s and in the 80s and the things that I loved, like the ruffles or like lace or, you know, like backless dresses. Or I wanted to come up with my own line, you know, that would be comfortable for women and not just models. And I think that's basically why what I'm trying to do with Christy Tail right now.
4: That's great. How do you market the brand? How do you get the word out? I mean, obviously you have a big stage and you have a good following on social media, but it also yes. seems like you're not one of those people that goes out and touts everything that, you, you know, that you're doing. So yeah. how, do you, how do you get the word out to the moms and to the people at the tennis clubs that you have this company that uh, they should try the apparel? Well,
2: that's, what, that, that's where you come in.
4: <laughs> I'm happy to do that.
2: No, you know, I try I, I try to do as much press as I can. Um, and I try to, you know, get into some advertising into the tennis magazines. And before the U.S. Open, we're going to have a, a, a cocktail party introducing the fall and um, next year's line at the U.S. Open. So I try to take advantage of my being with ESPN at the Grand Slams and, and try to give it a little bit of press during the Grand Slams. But, you know, it's word of mouth. It's a lot of tennis shops, you know, we're already in a lot of tennis shops, and, um, and social media certainly helps. So um, the branding, you know, and the publicity is, is definitely key and very crucial to getting the word out.
4: Tennis icon Chris Evert is joining us here on Sports Business Radio. You can find her on Twitter at Chrissy Everett. You can find her clothing company on Twitter at Chrissy by Tail. So the prize money, do you ever just look at it? I've had Jack Nicholas on the show before. I've had John McEnroe on. And we look at the, you know, the prize money when you were playing. You won $100,000 if you won a Grand Slam in the 70s you know, in a few weeks, the prize money is three and a half million dollars for both the men and, and the women, do you just shake your head and go, wow, look at that money.
2: You know what? I feel really lucky that I came up after Billie Jean, our leader and our pioneer after she spoke up for equal prize money. Because when you look at it, her generation was, was amateur and getting nothing. Hmm. So I was the next generation. And to me, in the '70s, when you think about it, winning a hundred thousand dollars at a tournament is just like now winning a million dollars at a tournament or two million dollars. It's, I mean, it's all relative. And remember, I mean, there's a lot more money now, but to me, there's a lot more demands on the players. Mm-hmm. They have to hire, you know, they're high, Everyone's hiring five or six players, uh, five or six people to be on their team. Whether it's a physio, whether it's a coach, a hitting partner, a nutritionalist you know, masseuse or whatever. I mean, these players come with a big team with big overhead and, um, you know, things are much more expensive now. So, I mean, you know, how much money is really enough for somebody? I made a great living over 18 years of, of playing professional tennis and with my endorsements. And, and I, and I just think, I think the players nowadays deserve the big money they're getting, because it just seems that there's, Um, The spotlight's on them a little bit more, and that's a heavy price to pay for lack of privacy. And they're doing more off-court with their companies and with their endorsements. So kudos to them. They deserve every cent they're getting.
4: Serena Williams is the dominant tennis player in women's tennis today. She's going for Grand Slam number 23 at the U.S. Open. I know that she reached out to you a few years ago. What did she reach out to you about? Did she just say, hey, look, I'm in a similar position to you, and I want to pick your brain? What has what that relationship been like?
2: Um, it actually was, She, re- I think it was more like, on um, the same lines as, um, hey, I really like that dress you had on last night, you made it. <laughs> and uh, then we started, uh, but she did, she was very um, engaging to me, we have a nice friendship, we text each other all the time. Um, I always talk, you know, we always talk about her, her reaching her goals of Grand Slams and and we we do have a lot in common because we both have been number one and we both dealt with the pressure and uh, expectations and lack of privacy. And so we've been through a lot of the same things, of, I think, her on a much bigger scale, though, in this day and age. But, you know, she's very engaging and she's very she's got a great personality. And and, uh, you know, I, I, I really enjoy the give and take and I have no problems commentating her matches and separating the friendship from Serena Williams, the tennis player because i'm I've been openly critical of her um, when I've needed to be and and complimentary when I've when I when I should be so but it, it's really um, she's a good girl and and uh, you know I think she's going to keep breaking some records here.
4: Maybe you can discuss for a moment the importance of relationships with competition. I mean, I know you and Martina, I've seen the thirty for thirty. it was fantastic. But you guys went skiing together, you trained together, but then you were fierce rivals on the court. What was that like? Because I know, you know, in some sports or some relationships, people don't hang out off the court with the person that they're competing against.
2: You know, I don't mean this to be a sexist remark, but I think it might be a little more difficult for women to really bond, like to go out and compete and try to beat each other and then go out to dinner afterwards to let it go, I think it's easier for guys to do that. Um, I think women, uh, there's a little more emotion and a little more drama associated with them. And, um, the thing is with Martina and I, don't get me wrong, that happened at the end of our career, you know, where we became very close. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was in my thirties when I went to Aspen I went to her house and skied with her and worked out with her. But trust me, in the middle twenties when the, when it was really heated and when the competition the rivalry was really heated, we didn't hang out together a lot so but i but I see the women you know in this day and age like I know Serena's good friends with you know Caroline wozniaki and uh, most the of, most of the top women are friendly, but at, at they have their teams and they have their camps and they'd rather go out to dinner with their coach and They'd rather not have to, have to deal with talking about tennis and talking about competition. So, I think that's human nature—really, not to be socialized a lot with your competition.
4: I grew up watching you and Martina and John McEnroe and Bjorn Borg and Jimmy Connors. I'm I'm 47 years old, um, uh-huh. and I, I still love the tennis of today. But I look fondly on your era. The state of tennis today, is it as good as it was when you were playing? Is there anything that you would change today if you were appointed the czar of tennis?
2: Wow, that's a heavy one. That's a heavy one. Um, You know, I think that's what ESPN um, and the WTA Women's Tennis Association, I think we're all trying to figure out right now how um, we can engage more with the fans at the tournaments and on TV, mm-hmm. and we—that's why we started. Like, you know, before the players walk on the court, we have on-court interviews. How do you feel? What do you What are you thinking about going into this match? What are your tactics? We're trying to get um, a little more engagement with the, the the TV audience because, you know, when you look at golf, they have such great ratings because you see everybody. You see everybody in four hours. You see everybody. But in tennis, very often, you'll see one match right. or two matches. You won't see everybody. You won't see all the top players. And if that one match is, in, is, is a wipeout and it's not a good match, you know people are going to turn off their TVs. So tennis is a little tougher to sell on TV um, for the spectators and for the people watching at home than other sports, football, for instance. I mean, basketball, you have a whole team. You see everybody you see LeBron and everybody else, you know, you just don't see LeBron. So um, we're trying to figure out what we can do to make it more attractive, whether it's interviewing a player after the first set. Okay, what do you need to do? You lost his first set, what do you need to do? But, you know, so we're really in exploring and investigating now how to make tennis more attractive um, for the viewer.
4: So U.S. tennis. I have this theory, and, and tell me if you agree or disagree. It seems like in the United States, I'd say in the last 15 to 20 years, we've become a country where the youngsters that are growing up, and I have an 11-year-old daughter, so I have an in-house case study, they seem to gravitate to team sports a little bit more than individual sports. And I'm wondering, is that why we're seeing the lack of great U.S. tennis players, because they're playing team sports versus individual sports?
2: That year. Absolutely on the money. I mean, that's the way I look at it. You know, I—I I mean, my kids um, were very, were good tennis players. They played, you know, high school tennis and they played tournaments and they they loved it. But you know, when you're five or six or seven years old, you want to be with your friends, don't you? Right. You want to play soccer and basketball with your friends. And mom, you know, I want—is David going to be there? You know, it's 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 less pressure, it's more camaraderie, and also. You know, up until now, now we have smaller rackets, we have bigger tennis balls, like Nerf balls. We have smaller tennis courts for the young kids, but really, we didn't, we didn't have that growing. You know, up until three or four years ago, we didn't have that. So young tennis players did not experience success at a young age. Whereas basketball, you have lower baskets, and soccer, you have a smaller field. You know, so there hasn't been success at a young age, and I think that's discouraged. Young tennis players, also, but you're right on the money. I mean, we have so many great team sports now, and the money's unbelievable. Oh yeah, right in the team sports and the college scholarships are unbelievable. And let me tell you, tennis is a very lonely sport and it's very isolated. It's you and you alone on the court, and it, it does and A lot of young kids don't want to be, feel that way. Hmm.
4: Chris Evert, tennis icon, you can find her on Twitter at Chrissy Everett. Just a few minutes left with her. Some of your Mm -hmm. biggest influences off the court. You've talked about your dad. You talked about your agent at IMG. Is there someone that you identified earlier in your career and you said, this is someone I really want to learn from, or maybe you've learned from that person uh, after you've retired?
2: Uh, Billie Jean King probably has been, uh, if you had asked me a woman who's influenced my life um, and who I've looked up to and admired and, and listened to, you know, Billie Jean, she's so funny. She's, I mean, At a young age, she had advice for me about, she was president of the Women's Tennis Association, and when I was like 18 years old, she looked at me and she said, okay, you need to be president next year. And I'm like, what? (laughs) I go, I know nothing about politics. I know nothing about business. And she said, well, I'm retiring, and people will only listen to a a top player, so you're going to be president. So she kind of um, helped me, mentored me into becoming president. And then, you know, she played doubles with me and helped me, encouraged me to come up to the net you know, in Bali, and, and, and even in my love life, she would have advice for me about, you know, my boyfriends and my husbands, and even when I had kids, she'd have advice for me, and she never even had kids, so I would like to say, Billy, you've never had children, she goes, yeah, but I know, you've got to set boundaries, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do that, so she's she's been there for me, you know, throughout my life, and, and she's probably the wisest person that I've ever met in my life.
4: Hillary Clinton is the Democratic nominee for President of the United States. I know you've been a role model for girls for a long time. Again, I have an 11 year old daughter. Do you sometimes just say, wow, look how far we've come? Or do you say we still have a long way to go?
2: It's, it's been gradual. And it's funny you mention Hillary because when I think of Billie Jean, I think they're so similar. Hmm. I mean, the way they talk, hmm. the way, you know, their leadership, their thinking. They're forward-thinking. I mean, their visions. Um, but you know, I, I'm. I mean, I love it that she's uh, um, the Democratic nominee, and I love it that that there, potentially she could become president of the United States. And and I think women are coming into their own, but it's still gradual. I I think it's still in the workforce. I think it's still a man's world, and I and I it, that's obvious because women are still getting paid less. And women don't have as high positions in business as men do, so it's still we still have a lot of work to do, and it's still gradual. But um, at least you know, at least we're going upward.
4: Yeah. As, again, as a father of an 11 year old daughter, I, I feel the same way you do. I feel like you know there's been good progress, but there's still. A long, long way to go. Yeah. A couple of just yeah. really quick questions for you. How have you enjoyed the broadcasting with ESPN? I really like your insight and analysis, and I like that uh, you know, you're not afraid to really give a player a critique <laughs> when they need to be critiqued.
2: I love it. You know, I love it. I, I, it's funny. I don't know why. Now I'm a little more open, but I, I tried it 20 years ago right after I retired and I worked for NBC, and I was horrible. Because I was like afraid to be opinionated, but now I mean, at this stage of my life, um, I feel like I, I need to be real. First of all, I need to be myself, and I need to 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 criti- criticize as well as compliment if I see something not not working. So I really love it. I love our team. We've got I mean Pam Shriver, Mary Jo, or Fernandez are two of my closest friends, mm-hmm. and we've got a great roster. You know, when you look at Patrick McEnroe, and Darren Cahill, and John McEnroe, and Darren Cahill you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, cliff dry sale. it's a fun team to work with. And I think having my tennis academy too, and seeing I've had to relearn what these younger kids, how they're playing with the Western grips and the open stance. And I've had to relearn that whole thing. And I think that's helped with my TV work.
4: Now, I think it, when I watch you guys, I go, they're having a lot of fun. You can just tell yeah. that you've got, are. you know, a good camaraderie and you enjoy going to these events and hanging out and teasing each other and, it, that looks yeah. like a good place to go to work every day. It
2: is a great place to go to work. It really is. It's a, it's a lot of fun, and at the same time, we're hopefully giving out a lot of wisdom and, and some good analysis of the matches.
4: Your use of social media, I, I like it. You know, you're on there pretty frequently, and uh, I follow you closely, and again, I follow you uh, with Chrissy by tail. Um, how do you like social media? Because like you said earlier in the conversation, social media wasn't around when you were playing.
2: No, I, I mean I I like it. I, you know, I'm not married and I don't have a husband, so I have a lot of free time. <laughs> so I, sometimes I hear my my friends go, "God, you're like really talking a lot last night." And I go, "I'm just I'm in bed alone and I'm I have a lot of free time and you know I'm just you know it's it's very interesting and I feel social media. You know, some of it can be negative when it comes to uh, the haters and the bullying. But I mean, I I've been lucky that I haven't really. Um, come across much of that, I think it's it 's good for discussing things and and getting some ideas out there and listening to people learning about how people are feeling so I think and, and getting the word out obviously business wise but but I think it's it can be a good outlet also um, for people to if they want to express themselves and um, you know 'm right now i 'm a fan of it we 'll see maybe next year i won 't be but <laughs> it 's worked out well for me so far.
4: Last question for you. You grew up playing with a wooden tennis racket. Obviously, they don't use wooden tennis rackets today. But if they did, who wins on the men's side? Who wins on the women's side? Let's say it's hardcore. Let's say it's U.S. Open. Everyone has to play with a wooden racket. How much different for the player is the experience of graphite and what they're playing with today versus a wooden racket that you played with?
2: It would affect the serving a lot. And so the players with big serves, I think, wouldn't, would have to work a little bit harder um, to win points. So I think Serena, it, it, her serve would be more returnable. Mm-hmm. Once you return that serve, you'd be in more rallies with her and it might be a little different. I think the graphite and the new materials definitely help the power players but there'd be more, um, you know, evenness, I think, in a match and uh, less of a gap with the power players and the consistent players. I think it would close the gap a little bit. And that's not to say the top players still wouldn't be the top players, but it would even the playing field, I think, more.
4: I mean, I play golf and, you know, I've talked to Tom Watson before and he said that he hits the ball further today with the clubs and technology of today than when he was in his 20s and they were playing with a, a wooden driver.
2: I have a better volley now at 61 years old than I did (laughs) when I was number one in the world at 25, so that should say something.
4: Oh, my gosh. Chris Everett, tennis icon, winner of 18 Grand Slams, broadcaster for ESPN. Uh, She's got the Everett Tennis Academy. She's got Chrissy by Tail, which you can find on Twitter at Chrissy by Tail. You can find Chris Everett on Twitter at Chrissy Everett. You know, I've done this show for 12 years. I've wanted to have you on for a long, long time, and I'm so happy that we had a chance to uh, chat.
2: Oh, I'm so glad we, we had a chance. Have you been asking for 12 years? I'm so sorry. No, Please. no, 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 no. I,
4: I haven't. But, you know, okay, it, it's all about timing, yes. right? And, and yes, making sure that uh, we know the right people to, to get to you. And, and yes. you know, Natalie's terrific. So I'm, yes. I'm really happy that we had a chance for this conversation.
2: Well, it was very interesting. You asked great questions. So thank you very much, Brian.
4: Thanks, Chris. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Now, here's Brian's
3: interview with Candace Parker, WNBA star and NBA on TNT analyst from April 2020.
4: My guest is Candace Parker. She is one of the all-time college basketball greats at the University of Tennessee. She's currently one of the faces of the WNBA with the LA Sparks, a long list of accolades, two-time WNBA MVP. WNBA champion, finals MVP. She's the co-host of the Ledlow and Parker podcast. You can also find her on TNT as a studio analyst. Candice underscore Parker is where you can find her on Twitter and Candice Parker on Instagram. Candice, thanks for joining me on Sports Business Radio. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. Uh, Thank you so much for having me.
4: No, I really appreciate it. Uh, I've wanted to talk to you for a long time. I just, I really admire your rise and your transition from you're still an elite athlete, but you're also transitioning into like a media star, too. And uh, I love to watch it. Let's start with what came out today, a release of the What's Up commercial. And <laughs> 1999 is when that commercial came out. And it's out again. It stars you, Dwayne Wade, Gabrielle Union, Chris Bosch, and Dean Nice. Give me the backstory. How did that commercial come about?
0: Well, I got a call from from D-Wade, my teammate D-Wade, and, you know, he's like, we're really excited about doing this spot. He's like, you know, really want to give you a call and talk to you, because we, you know, we talk all the time, me, him, Gab, all the time. And I'm friends with CB as well, Chris Bosch. My mom loves D-Nice, so she was, like, really excited that I was actually <laughs> shooting this commercial with D-Nice, because she listens to him, you know, on his live all the time. So, um, yeah, that's how it came about, and then... We just started shooting. It was a remote shot. So we shot everything from my actual iPhone with a Zoom meeting, basically. Wow. So you're talking to everybody, but you're talking to your phone. And it's kind of like really cool how they put it together. I'm amazed by the technology. But I was a huge fan of, you know, the what's up, what's up commercial and the the, the frogs, you know, Budweiser. So, like, I feel like they've had some really you know impactful commercials and this to be a part of this was was so much fun for me to to be with my friends and to be authentic as well
4: yeah it looked like you guys had a lot of fun and you know the underlying message of the commercial is encouraging people to stay connected during this time i thought that was good too that budweiser kind of took that slant and, and reminded people during these unique times to stay connected
0: yeah, it's important for you to, like, you you never know at this point in time what a phone call or a text message or a handwritten letter or doing something nice for somebody can can really impact them. Uh, I know a lot of people are feeling kind of alone, and so you don't know how much that, that does. And just making sure everybody's okay, checking on each other. And so that was, you know, the message, and I hope it came across uh, in the way we meant it.
4: How many takes for the commercial or did you guys nail it on the first take?
0: <laughs> no, there's three takes that we had to do, but just for them to have like backup, I would like to think that we were just perfect from the start, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it was just a lot of, because of the technology, just making sure that the volume was okay. Cause we're all in our, you know, in our home shooting this. So that's kind of, you know, it's kind of what happened, but now, you know, everything, it, it, it's happy with it. I think it was just how we normally would talk on the phone, uh, with the FaceTime. So it was, it was cool.
4: How many times did you have to practice here? What's that?
0: <laughs> well, it's weird because you know, everybody's shot. You've got to be shy a little bit when you're doing it and it comes across, you know, less, less animated on television or on radio or whatever. So you almost have to oversell it. So a couple times I was just like, what's up? You know? And he's like, no, the director was like, no, we, we need more. And I was like, okay, <laughs> let me, let me go in my bag. Let me try to, try to get it right. So it was, um, it was a lot of fun. And then once D Wade and Gabby started doing it, then it was just, you know, we started going crazy with it.
4: That was great. Congratulations on, on doing that. How are you navigating this time right now? I've been starting off all of my shows in the last, I'd say five weeks with that question. You're an elite athlete you're a podcaster, broadcaster, you're a mom. I'm a a dad to a 15-year-old daughter. This is a weird time. How are you navigating it?
0: It's a weird time, but I think just being open and honest about the way we're feeling, um, it kind of will help with your reaction a little bit. And that's kind of what we're doing in in our house. Um, My mom is here, and luckily she's here because she lives by herself in Chicago, and so I'm happy that that she's able to be here with us, right? Uh, She's she's older, six, older than 60. So I do all the grocery shopping and, 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 you know, she, she cooks and things like that, but just being open and talking with my daughter about things, uh, it can be scary if you oversaturate yourself with the negatives, you turn on the news every day and it's, you know, talking about scary things and for Layla to, to kind of process everything and just let her know, you know, we, we can talk about whatever you're scared about, but Life is about adjustments, and we're trying to make adjustments so that we can be safe so that everybody else can be safe and Listen, I travel year year round, so for me, it's weird because I'm kind of happy like I'm able to be present, and I have things that I do at home that are taking one thirtieth of the time because I don't have a hop on a plane and go and a lot of us I think are learning that some of these things can be done virtually and it's, it, you, you bring out the best in people when they're in their home environment and able to be comfortable. So I think we're learning a lot about the way the world works, but you know, for us, we're, we're okay. And we're taking things in stride.
4: What about workouts and, and things of that nature? I've talked to athletes who are like filling water bottles and putting them in suitcases <laughs> to use them as weights. Do you have a decent setup at home?
0: I have a decent setup. I, last year I was out with an injury, so I ordered a Peloton bike.
4: Oh, I got one too.
0: That was one of the best things I did just because I'm able to get cardio with no excuses in at any point in time. Right. If I have 20 minutes, I can hop on the bike and do it, you know, and then I just, you know, I have a stability ball. Fortunately, I live in, you know, L.A., so we're able to kind of go outside and and do some, you know, jump rope and things like that. But there's no hoop or you know, anything like that. So we do ball handling. My daughter's into basketball now, so we'll do ball handling together. And she has her little Zoom ball handling meetings with her team, which is so cute. Nice. Uh, But really just trying to, you know, stay in shape as best we can. Listen, everybody's in pretty much the same place. You know, we can't go to a gym and work out. So, you know, just trying to modify and figure out things to do.
4: I want to go back to when you were younger, um, I've heard you talk about the importance of playing multiple sports and not specializing in one sport. I know you played basketball, volleyball, and soccer. I'm a big proponent of multiple sports as well. But maybe you can talk about just the importance of, of playing multiple sports and how that helped you.
0: It helped me tremendously. And, you know, we had Todd Gurley on our podcast on Ludlow and Parker the other day. And we had a clip of him that we ran of him crossing this guy up and falling and the guy fell down. And the same footwork that he uses to stutter step and burst through the hole is the same footwork you use. You just put a basketball in your hand. And so everybody's so focused on making sure that you can handle the ball and things like that. But footwork's just as important. And everything that I learned in soccer has really translated into basketball. And, um, You know, even you can look at the approach in volleyball that that's helped me, you know, make my feet quicker and be able to laterally move to get to close a block. So I just think there's so many things and just like desire. I mean, how burnt out are kids now that play year round? Because that's what it is now. It's a year round sport. And I think it's so important to emphasize being versatile. And my versatility comes from doing multiple sports.
4: Did you ever have a coach say you got to just play one sport?
0: Yes, I. I won't say that they were like, you know, you have to, but they kind of made me choose, and I didn't choose soccer. So I'm playing. I started. I continue to play volleyball and basketball. And to be honest with you, I mean, I played soccer until I was 14, 13 years old, and it was a good time for me to stop because I do think, you know, my body, just in terms of how much impact and i was doing with volleyball at basketball and soccer uh but yeah I, I i chose to not continue with that because it wasn't going to be one of those things where i was going to have to to choose and and play one sport i played volleyball up until my junior year in high school so i was a dual sport athlete uh for most of my high school career
4: and then you went on and you played for legendary coach pat summit at the university of tennessee you became one of the old time great college basketball players I'm sure you've been asked this question a lot, but what are some of the things forget about basketball for a minute? What are some of the lessons that Pat summit taught you?
0: You know, it's, it's funny as we transitioned from the three sports to, to Tennessee and to coach summit, because my first recruiting letter for Tennessee was actually for volleyball. Hmm. So Interesting. her a hard time about that all the time. Like, you know, I should have just came here and played volleyball. <laughs> <laughs> they clearly wanted me before you did. Um, uh, but, I, I mean, I can't even, we would be here all day if I told you all the things that she's taught me. And it doesn't have to do with basketball. That's what's so special. She has changed the way that I parent. She's changed the way that I am as a friend, as a mother, um, as a partner, as a daughter, as everything. Hmm. Um, she really has. In the way that she walked the walk, everything that came out of her mouth and that she required of us, she was doing herself and even more so. And as we watch all the greats, we watch all of the greats. I mean, I'm sure you checked out the last dance, and you see that Michael Jordan does the extraordinary things extraordinary, but he also does the little things extraordinary. And that's what made her special. She focused on little details. I mean, there's lessons you can learn from Coach Summit. She, The way she wrote her autograph, all of us sign our autographs just to get it done. You know, you barely recognize a C and a P with me and a number three. <sighs> Coach Summit, she wrote out every single autograph, allegedly, so you could read it, Pat Summit. And I asked her one day, I was like, Coach, why do you do that? She's like, Because I want that person to know I put the time and the energy to make this for them, that I'm giving them, you know, my time, my energy, my best foot forward. And I'm like, That's an autograph. She signs millions, you know? And it's just those little things that she taught me, I really try to carry with me today.
4: That's amazing. So you now play for the LA Sparks of the WNBA and your franchise has been so successful. I mean, you play in a very crowded marketplace in LA, but you've led the WNBA in attendance 2017, 2018, 2019, the WNBA business franchise of the year in 2019. For people who haven't spent any time in the LA market, I mean, that's quite an achievement. What's the basketball vibe like in Los Angeles?
0: honestly in LA we've learned that if you win they'll love you forever Hmm. and you know we had a drought for an extremely long time with championships when we finally got over the hump in 2016 I think it was just because of our new leadership I mean we had a new group that came in and really changed things around we had a, a new president um we you know we hired uh just everybody behind the scenes was, was new, excited to keep going. And they cared. Um, I know Denita Johnson is doing a hell of a job right now, just in terms of getting us out in the community and finding out our interests and uh, making it more than sport. Because if you think about it, you know, a lot of people can follow baseball, basketball, and NFL, and people might want to debate this, but the NBA has done a hell of a job of connecting with their fans That means getting in the community. That means having different business ventures, them highlighting it and helping athletes, um, you know, get out there and showcase that they're more than just athletes. Fans love stories. They love to be a part of something. And if you do that and you create and cultivate that culture, you know, the fans will come and support your business. And so that's kind of what the LA Sparks have done in the last, you know, especially a couple of years.
4: Yeah, I interviewed uh, Kathy Engelbert in February and was so impressed with her and just, you know, her vision for the league. And and I know there's some great leaders in the league. Uh, I'm in Oregon, so I've seen Sabrina play. And, you know, I think she's got a bright career in front of her. So uh, I think the league is in really good hands moving forward.
0: I think so, too. And that's the thing that this, there's going to be obstacles within growth. And it's so funny how quickly people forget struggles when you reach success. I mean, the NBA was on tape delay in the 80s. They had playoff games that were on tape delay on television. And nobody remembers that now because guys are signing $200 million contracts. But there were steps that had to be taken. There was lockouts. There were people that, um, you know, fought for the rights of what players have now. And that's what we look at, at as this growing period now with the WNBA. or the longest standing sports league women's sports league that america has ever seen we plan to be here for a while i want my daughter to have an opportunity to play professionally if she wants to and you know by that it means going through these growing pains it means fighting for things it means taking a stand and this past year we did that obviously we have a new um you know new person in charge that's going to lead us and um you know that that's that's what we're hoping for we're hoping to grow the game of basketball
4: With that being said, women's sports receives less than 1% of all sponsorship dollars and less than 4% of all sports media coverage. This is why I think you're doing amazing things beyond the basketball court. You've become such a recognizable face, and and you really transcend the basketball court. What needs to be done to get those numbers up?
0: It's just interesting. It's going to take one person— one corporation, one organization to have the realization that within a household, who does most of the spending? It's women. Women usually are the ones that are doing most of the spending. And how can we cater to advertise to those women? And right now, especially with fitness being in, eating right being in, what better opportunity? I mean, we've seen the following that the women's national team has had and they still get disrespected and they still get paid less. And there's still an argument that (laughs) he had to step down because of the remarks that he's made regarding women uh, from, you know, from soccer. So if you think about it, it's going to take a process. It is going to take the realization and it's going to take a generation. I have so much hope for this generation coming up that have grown up with women in sports as in leadership roles, on television, speaking about sports, speaking knowledgeably about sports. I have so much hope for this next generation of women and men to kind of take this baton and move the needle forward. Because honestly, the guys that are disrespecting women's sports usually are in their 40s or 50s. You know what I mean? It's kind of like young guys that have grown up, now are entering the generation where – Guys had moms that played after Title IX. They had moms that went to school and got scholarships to run track and do things like that. You have moms, you know, NBA players that had moms that, that played sports. So you're seeing that transition, and I think you're going to see that with advertisement as well.
4: Yeah, again, as parent to a 15-year-old daughter who plays sports, I hope it continues to improve as well. All right, I want to talk about your media career because – You've become widely known for that. So you're on NBA on TNT. Uh, I think you hold your own at least against Shaq and uh, Dwayne Wade. You get, looks like you guys have a lot of fun. And then the Ledlow and Parker podcast. I listen to that regularly. You guys have great guests. I'm in Portland, so I love the Damian Lillard episode that you had recently. Just Transitioning to broadcasting, there's a lot of people who kind of struggle with: Do I do that at the end of my career? Do I do it during my career? How did you kind of land with what the right time was to do that?
0: Well, when I turn on the television, I literally tuned in to Thursday nights, sometimes just to watch the broadcast at Turner, right? Just to watch TNT, just to watch those guys go back and forth, and they make the game fun. So I'm in my living room watching this as a fan and talking about it on the couch. I think the best job in the world is to play basketball, and the second best job is to talk about it. Hmm. I do it anyway. And so it just kind of naturally happened where I was tired of playing overseas. I feel like my daughter, she's 10 now, and at the time she was eight and a half, nine. We just got back from another stint in China and it was just getting harder and harder like she needs her life here she needs friends she needs activities that she's doing and she'd been about mom for her entire life so it was time for me to kind of take a back seat say no to some contracts that were hard to say no to and kind of transition into this next phase of life and it just ended up being a great partnership and it was the right time Players Only had just started so I was doing stuff on Area 21 and we started the show Players Only and you know, it just kind of stuck. And it ended up being not a job. You know, it was something I really thoroughly enjoyed going to work and doing. And from the get go, coming in being the only female analyst, I made it clear, like, especially to Tara. Tara August is amazing. She's brought in a lot of the people that are working at, at Turner as talent. And I said to her, I don't want to be a hire because I'm a woman or because I'm a female. I want to be a hire because I deserve to have this job and I deserve to be up there talking about basketball. And I made it clear to the guys, I'm not trying to be one of the boys. I'm trying to be your teammate. I'm trying to be one of the players. And so I honestly had to pinch myself a couple times because I'm up on set with these guys, these people that I idolized growing up. And now, you know, we're calling each other teammates. So it's really really special when you get into a a great situation, and, and that's what I have there.
4: I think you do an outstanding job. And as they say, game recognizes game, right? They, they recognize the fact that you've been one of the all-time great women's basketball players. And I think you guys have fun. You can see that. Just like we talked about with the Budweiser commercial, I see that same kind of fun being had on set when you're on set with those guys.
0: It's a lot of fun. I mean, I think Chuck says it best. It's an orange ball. It's not that serious. Let's <laughs> not make it that complicated. Let's just go out and have fun and give people. I mean, if we didn't realize anything right now that sports has a huge place in just our society and our happiness and our ability to look forward to something. I mean, think about how many games you DVR. I'm a huge football fan on a Saturday or on a Sunday. You know, the conversations that I have with other people that cheer for the same teams I cheer for. I mean, it has a lot to do with our daily lives. And so just don't make it complicated. Get up there, show your personality, have fun. And, you know, I think (laughs) you'll be successful.
4: How about your podcast with Kristen? You guys also seem to have a great chemistry and a lot of fun and good back and forth with your guests.
0: Kristen is one of the best teammates I could possibly have or ask for. She is like a personal friend of mine, but then on air, it's almost like she picks up what I'm putting down and, you know, I pick up what she's putting down. And it was it's a great place to communicate. I mean, there's so many times where I'll get a text at like one o'clock in the morning. I was thinking like we could (laughs) ask this guest or we could go this way on this interview. And the same way for me, I'm like, sorry I'm texting you this late. The way my mind works. What do you think about this? And we support each other and give each other an honest opinion. And I think it's important to have a place where you can bring ideas and somebody will be honest. I mean, there's so many times where she's like, I see where you're going with that. I don't know if that'll work. And the same thing for, you know, for me with her. So it's just nice to have a teammate that respects you and you enjoy going to work with.
4: I know we have just a few minutes left. You work with Adidas, you have for a long time. When someone like Budweiser or Adidas comes to you, what do you look for in a business partner? What are the traits you look for?
0: I'm so happy you asked this question. And everybody that I, th- I, I hope will say um, this about me, when I want a partnership, I want something that's long-lasting. I don't want something that's just going to be or something that I believe in or is authentic. And um, those are the three keys for everything. And with the Sparks, I've been with the Sparks my entire career. We've been through ups and downs, believe me. Uh, But I really want to stick with it. I think it's something when you're able to stick with the same place or the same organization or you know workplace for your entire career. Same thing with Adidas. Adidas has supported me. I was pregnant and injured the next year. The following year, I had shoulder surgery. I mean, there's so many ups and downs, but they've always had my back and and change i think you you do that as well for them uh you support them you are more passionate about their products and putting it out there and speaking about it and um i think that's important for any anything and it's the same thing i hope to have a long lasting relationship with turner and being able to be there i mean you speak to some of these guys and they've been there for years and years and years. So when, I, you know, when I'm going out and looking at stuff, it's, it's more authenticity, doing something you believe in, and longevity.
4: Was there someone along the way who kind of pulled you aside and, and taught you business?
0: Coach Summit. And it's almost like you don't even realize she's doing it, but she's doing it. And I remember coming into her office. This was more my junior and senior year when I was looking to go pro. And she was showing me things that I, at the time, I don't know if I really took in. She was going to speak to the CIA. She was going to speak to the CIA. Wow. She was telling me about some of the speaking gigs that she was doing on the side and how at this point, let's just be honest, she didn't need the money, but she wanted to establish relationships. And she always taught me that people in passion, you will never fail. If you chase those two things and if you surround yourself with those two things, both in business, both as a mom, both at whatever space you want to go into, if you chase those two things and that's what I've done. I don't know everything, but I know someone that does. And that comes with surrounding yourself with great people. And I, I, I bet if I don't know anybody that does, I can call one of my inner circle members and they will know somebody to help me. And so it's just nobody goes at things alone. Nobody knows everything. And in business, it, the, the sooner you know that <laughs> and everything, the sooner you know you don't know everything, then that's going to be when you're most successful.
4: Yeah, I agree. We all have our weaknesses and we need teammates who can bring support in those areas where we have weaknesses. All right, we'll end on this. I, I heard you do an interview and you said that vacation spots and your home, like the, those are the two things that you'll spend money on because you're... You know, you like taking vacation. I do, too. And and your home is kind of like your, your palace, right? It's where you want to be yes. safe and, and hang out with your family. Where's your favorite uh, vacation
0: spot? Oh, my goodness. All right. So I might be dropping because I've tried to keep this quiet because I know people <laughs> know about it, but they don't know how gorgeous. So Punta de Mida, the Four Seasons there, Ooh. is my favorite place ever. Like, I will – I mean, it's especially in Mexico, so it's quick – It's not too far flight, Um, but that's my, yeah, that's my guilty pleasure. Vacations, you hit it right on the head when it's a relaxation and a time. I think those are the memories that kids most carry with them. And I always said, I didn't want to spoil Layla with things. I wanted to spoil her with like time and memories. And so that's what I try to do is we take really nice vacations and, Maybe we might sacrifice other things. I'm not big in cars. I will ride my, I will drive my car until it's in the ground. Like I <laughs> hate getting new cars. I hate getting new phones. I hate getting new computers. So my family knows that, so they'll just feel bad because my phone is like so jacked up and cracked that they'll send me one because I'm like <laughs> it worked fine. It's fine. Like it, it, I'll get by. But those like vacation in my home are two things that I'm extremely passionate about and try not to sacrifice you know, the splurging, I guess, splurging on.
4: Yeah, we're totally in alignment on creating memories and vacations yeah. with our kids. And I think they do remember that for their whole lives. Do you have a movie theater in your house? Because it looks like in the Budweiser commercial, you're like sitting in a in a theater.
0: Yeah, so we have a, like a movie screening room. It kind of plays as like a workout Peloton movie room, like screening room. Um, we watch movies a lot and we pop popcorn. So my daughter was like, we had to have this. And so, yeah, so we did it in the house and that was part of her little birthday gift that we did. And so I kind of turned like experiences or things that I'm going to spend money on into, <laughs> into birthday gifts. <laughs> oh,
4: that's great.
0: That's so She really... doesn't know. She doesn't know the difference.
4: <laughs> Before I let you go, any uh, movies or TV shows you've been binging that, uh, that people need to know about?
0: Okay, everybody's watched the Tiger King. I haven't watched it. Okay, well, I was anti-everything. Like, I didn't watch Game of Thrones because everybody talks about it, and I'm just like, I can't. Uh, but I would suggest Tiger King, just as entertainment. Hmm. It's like, that world really does exist. Like, like, people in this world exist that operate in this way, <laughs> which is so crazy. Um, another, I'm a huge documentary. Like, I'm a huge history buff. So I've been watching like the Oswald files on um, History Channel on demand. And hmm. It's really cool to kind of hear more about like the JFK assassination and you know was there conspiracy things like that. Uh, so anything Kennedy related, I'm vi- like I'm watching that documentary. Uh, in terms of shows, Little Fires Everywhere.
4: I've been watching that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah.
0: Okay. So I'm starting that. Like that's on my list after the morning show. So the morning show I'm finishing
4: that's good too that's really yeah. good
0: yes so i'm like right where the you know everything kind of hits the fan in the morning show so i'm excited
4: and then of course last dance the michael jordan doc and and you lived in chicago for a while and i know grow up grew up a big uh, michael jordan fan
0: yes i had my popcorn and it was actually on my birthday so i don't know if it was by chance that they decided to release it on my birthday i would like to think happy you birthday God. Thank you. But they released it on there, so it was the best birthday gift ever. Uh, We had my popcorn. I had my little Chicago Bulls jersey on. We sat down. We watched the the show. There were so many surprising things that it was fun to watch as an adult because at this time, I was like 10. So the way I processed everything that was happening was so different um, than I do now in terms of even the Scottie Pippen stuff and, like, the way Michael Jordan behaved and how he acted and things like that. It was just... It's so cool to see, as an adult, uh, people that you idolize and what it takes to to win a championship. I mean, it was it's insane.
4: Yeah, I'm looking forward to the next uh, what four Sundays. Just
0: release all of them. Yes, yeah, like eight. You already, you know, there's eight more, so you're holding us hostage for four more weeks.
4: <laughs> I know. It is kind of the. Do you release them all at one time and you can binge them, or do you spread it out? And I guess during this time, it makes sense to spread them out and make it kind of a Sunday night event.
0: Yeah, I know everybody's looking forward to, to this Sunday coming up and getting the story behind each player.
4: Candace Parker, the co-host of the Ledlow and Parker podcast. You can also find her on the NBA on TNT. Find her on Twitter at Candice underscore Parker. Find her on Instagram at Candice Parker. Candice, thank you so much for making the time. Continued success to you. I'm so impressed with uh, everything that you do on the basketball court and off. And uh, stay safe during this time.
0: Thank you so much. This is an awesome interview and I appreciate your support and um, definitely supporting you. Uh, Be safe. Please stay healthy.
4: Thank you so much. You're listening to sports business radio. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Brian Berger here. We've collaborated with our friends at parish project to create high quality sports business radio clothing, including hoodies, long sleeve t-shirts and short sleeve t-shirts. Each item comes in five different colors and a variety of sizes. These items are super comfortable, and you can wear them on Zoom calls while working out or when you're lounging around the house. Sports Business Radio has loyal listeners around the world. We'd love for you to post a picture rocking your Sports Business Radio gear. Tag us on Instagram or Twitter if you post. Get your official Sports Business Radio gear by going online to parishproject.com. That's parishproject.com, P-A-R-I-S-H, project.com. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. And thanks to our partner, Molka Sports, for powering Sports Business Radio. Learn more about them online at molkasports.com. That's M-A-L-K-A sports.com. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio.